The word of God says in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. Now we come to a tragic chapter. We've just exited this tour of the tabernacle. But I want to call this episode Diagnosing Idolatry. Diagnosing Idolatry. Because what happens, we go directly from this beautiful portion of God giving instructions for dwelling among his people... And the very next thing we're going to see is his people not just rebelling against him, but rebelling against him by creating an idol, creating a God who will go before them. But we're going to see some very deep implications for our lives. In fact, now I want to just say that personally, this episode is, is probably one of the most potent episodes from my heart. And I trust it'll be for yours as well. That's my prayer. It's my prayer for you. Um, and it's certainly my prayer that I would respond to it appropriately as well. Now, just because we leave Egypt doesn't mean our heart has left Egypt. Um, and, and so we're going to see this very clearly in them. We saw this back in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3 as well, that their hearts went back to Egypt, even though their bodies didn't go back to Egypt. And uh, and the absence of Moses just gave the children the opportunity to, to openly worship what they were already worshiping in their hearts. And that's the thing. Idolatry, it's very subtle, but the, the reality is when, when it demonstrates itself, it's not that the demonstration is where it began. It was already occurring in our heart before that. And that's what we're going to see here. So I want to ask the question, why do we make idols? Why or when do we make idols? And we're going to look at a few different ways or times that we do this. We do it when God's or because of God's delay or God's seeming delay. We do it with God's directions when they seem to be off. We do it with God's demands. We don't like to be holy. And we do it with God's distance or his perceived distance. He seems far away. And so we'll look at these briefly, and then we'll have a whole series of questions for us to ask ourselves at the end. By the way, the gospel is going to be really clear in this episode as well. So first, why do we make idols? Well, God's delay, God's seeming delay. Why are we still where we are? Notice how the chapter starts out. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Uh, what, what What's going on right now? It's a delay. He delayed. Did, did Moses delay? No. It says in the last verse, when God had finished speaking, he waited for God to finish speaking. Moses didn't delay. Moses waited on the Lord. But how often do we feel that waiting on the Lord is just a delay? There is no greater time consumption than waiting on God. And waiting is not like waiting in a doctor's office where we're sitting around doing nothing. It's like a server at a restaurant, actively waiting, actively serving, actively seeing how we can uh, fulfill the desires of his heart for us. Uh, he invites us into that. And so we see that God sometimes seems to delay. But notice that when feelings, it says when the people saw that Moses delayed, when feelings are the guide rather than faith in who God is, 
we will exchange intimacy for idolatry. And that's exactly what's going to go on here. Now, now keep in mind, what had Aaron witnessed back in Exodus 20, 24? Well, he had dinner with God. What a opportunity that was. And, and also, where was Aaron told to wait? Well, he was told in 24, 14, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And then who did Aaron choose to worship? Well, instead of choosing to, to wait and then choosing to go off what he had witnessed just six weeks ago, he chooses to worship, well, before an, an altar made of gold, a golden calf. We see this down in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute there. Really perverse and messed up what's going on there. But I want us to get this. It only took six weeks between a divine encounter, dinner with God, for Aaron to be making a golden calf. You may be walking with the Lord today, but beware. Beware of sin coming into your life, creeping into your life, whatever form that might be. Whether it's someone you meet, whether it's something you have, whether it's something you want, whether it's an opportunity before you, just beware. That's all I'm saying. Beware. Because it doesn't take long to go from dinner with God to idolatry in the camp. And it's idolatry that you are building, idols you are building. And so notice in verses 1 and 4, we have this phrase, make us, make us a golden calf. And then we see down in verse uh, verse uh, 4, with a graving tool, uh, made a golden calf. And so this is going to be a work of the hands of Aaron Notice God's directions, though. God's directions also seem to be off. And this is very fair that, that they would say, God, what are you doing? It doesn't matter where you place Mount Sinai. If you place Mount Sinai in the southern portion of the today's Sinai Peninsula, uh, St. Catharines, or if you place Mount Sinai over in Saudi Arabia, it doesn't matter. Wherever you place Mount Sinai, I'm telling you, it is not en route. It's not in the road between where they were slaves in Egypt and the so-called promised land. Either you're going down or you're going way over and then coming back up. But either way, it is not on the way. This is significant to see the geography of where God is leading them because God's directions seem to be off. How about your life? Is it ever that way for you? Do you perceive that God's directions just seem to be off? You, you, you're somewhere in life today where you didn't anticipate, where you don't want to be, where you're like, God, why am I here? And I want you to understand that God's directions may seem to be off, but he has you where he has you because there's something for you to learn. There's this, uh, a measure of trust that he wants to communicate to you. It is a privilege to be where we are. And I have to say that from my own heart. I need to hear that because even though I think God's directions at times are off or God seems to be delaying, the reality is that he's picking us up where we are. He's using where we've walked to glorify his name. So be encouraged today if you feel that God's directions are off. He's actually got you right on course today if you're willing to submit to his way. It doesn't mean that we don't stray, but it certainly means that he picks us up where we are. Also, we see that God's demands were a problem for them and it led to idolatry. God's demands to be holy, to be set apart to just him. See, this God, this Yahweh, he was not acting the way they wanted him to act. So therefore, what did they do? Well, they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So they gathered themselves together and said, what? Up, make us gods. So they want their own gods. Well, why do they want their own gods? Because the God that they were following isn't acting the way they want him to act. Does God act the way you want him to act? 
No, I'll give you examples. You want more money. You want more wealth. You want more comfort. So what do you do? You pursue your own gods, gods of this world, gods of a bigger house, gods of, of more cars, gods of more expensive cars, gods of better vacations, gods of more stuff. Same thing. We're really not that different. God's not giving us what we think we should have. Therefore, we make ourselves gods that we can pursue. Uh, we're not happy with one spouse. So therefore, let's cheat on our spouse. Therefore, let's divorce and take another spouse. We're not happy with what God's given us. Let us get up and make gods. We're not different. We're not different. And this is the issue, right? So understand, this is not an alienated portion of scripture. It's not something that just happened back then. It's something that happens in our hearts today. Diagnosing idolatry. Are you willing to do it? Some of you want to turn off the episode right now. I encourage you, please keep listening. At least get to the portion where I ask some questions for us to consider. Uh, see, there's a, there's a huge lesson there here with God's demands. This is huge. When they want to make a God for themselves, what do they do? Please look at what it says here in verse uh, two. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Take off the gold. Get that. Take off the gold. Are you ready for this? Take off the gold. Oh, don't miss this. We just navigated three episodes on touring the tabernacle. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but there was a word used over and over. It was used in the introduction back in Exodus chapter 25. When you come to verse three, and this is the contribution you shall receive for them. And the first word that is given in all the instructions on the tabernacle is this gold. Get the gold. The first thing is the gold. We see so much gold invested into that tabernacle. In fact, over between this and uh, chapter 32, I think there's I think there's 47 references. I might be off a little bit. I think there's 47 references between chapter 25, verse 3, and where we are now in chapter 32. Gold, 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 gold. Take the gold. Use the gold. Put the gold here. Build this with gold. Gold, 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 gold. Do you get the idea? I've just started. I'm not even anywhere near 42 times. Gold, 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 gold. God wanted the gold. The gold from Egypt that they brought out to be invested into his house, into pointing to his glory. So what happens? Before Moses comes down from the mountain, oh, my friends, don't miss this. Before Moses comes down from the mountain, the enemy infiltrates the camp through the hearts of the people and the first thing Aaron says is this, take off the rings of gold, gold that was intended for the house of God. If only they would wait for Moses to come down from the mountain and give them instructions. But instead, that gold is being invested into making an idol instead of intimacy with God through the tabernacle being among them. <laughs> this is the lesson. What God intends to use in your life, the enemy intends to abuse in your life. What God intends to use, the enemy has his eyes on it, knowing that God wants it. And he says, let me see if I can't get to it first. God wants your heart. He wants your abilities. He wants your time. He wants your resources. He wants your investments. He wants your energy. He wants your relationships. He wants your everything. But what, the God, what God intends to use, the enemy longs to abuse. Are you giving in? Are you falling for his methods? Today, take an inventory of your life. Are you using the things that God gave you for his glory, for your own glory? Are you using the things God gave you for his glory, for simply earthly pursuits that don't last for eternity? Friends, this is convicting. The fourth thing we see is God's distance. 
he seems far away. What's he saying on the mountain? He says, I want to live in your midst. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. Verses 7 and 8, God gives his analysis of the situation. He says, go down for your people whom you have brought, <laughs> your people, isn't that interesting? Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. God's calling these people Moses' people, not even his own. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I love this quote by one commentator. He said, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. And at least it could not intrude on their fun. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This is a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, though. There's syncretism involved here because notice they're not abandoning Yahweh completely. Well, what does Aaron say? He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What? They made a golden calf, an idol, a god, and they say it should be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh? What are they doing? They're just compromising. They're putting it all together, compromising it, synchronism at, at its finest. And let me tell you that God is God alone. What was the first word he says? <laughs> Let's go back and look at the first word he says, and we call it Ten Commandments, right? But the first word um, in Hebrew, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness, anything that is heaven above or that, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. What do they do? <laughs> They take a graving tool, they make a golden calf, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see how utterly obnoxious it is what is going on here? I mean, literally to the word, as obnoxious as it could be. And so uh, after, after God says what he says to Moses, notice what he, it says in verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Okay, uh, And then he says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He says, Moses, I'm going to keep working with you, but these people I want to get rid of. And then Moses steps in, he acts as a mediator of sorts. He pleads on behalf of the people. Even later on, he says, hey, my life for theirs, right? Um, but, but he's a mediator of sorts. And what does he say in verse 13? He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. He says, bigger than the covenant you just made with us. This is your story from the beginning. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And then the Lord relents. I love that verse 14. The same language we see in Jonah, right? The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God relents. Oh, what mercy and patience, long-suffering nature of God. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. And, and it even says the writing was the writing of God. Now, it's interesting. Moses already knows that they've rebelled. He already knows what they've done because God's told him, right? But when he comes down and he actually sees, Joshua hears the noise of the people. He says, there's noise of war in the camp. But he says, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat. It's the sound of singing, I hear. And as soon, verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Why did Moses break them? I want to ask you that question. I, I want to suggest something. I'm not claiming this is the answer, the only answer, but 
I think Moses broke them because they had broken God's covenant. The covenant was broken. Why keep the why keep the tablets? Why 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 keep this these articles of of agreement when the agreement is already shattered? Now it's beautiful because God's going to send them back up on the mountain and there's going to be uh, a rewriting of the same thing. But we see here that they're broken. Now, let's get to the gospel. What do we see come up next in this portion? Well, look at verse 20. Moses comes down. He takes the calf that they had made and he burns it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, now pause. He ground up this, this golden calf, put it in the water and made the people drink it. He made them drink their sin. Does this sound familiar to you? He made them drink their sin. Well, it sounds familiar to me. Psalm 75, verse 8, what does it say? In the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Jeremiah 25, 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They're drinking judgment in these passages. There's this, this cup of God's wrath that is set aside for the wicked to drink. But wait. They drank their sin? We are to drink our sin? But then Jesus comes. And what does he do? He gives us a cup of blessing. He says, here, drink of this cup, the cup of the covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then when he goes to the cross, he goes to Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, Jesus prays to his father and he says, if it be possible, what does he not pray? He doesn't say, if it be possible, let this cross pass from me. He doesn't say that. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why the cup and not the cross? Because when Jesus went to the, the cross, the, the ultimately he was coming to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He came to drink the cup of our sin so that we might drink the cup of his blessing. Jesus drank our sin. Here they're drinking their own sin. But in the gospel, we have a marvelous reversal where he drinks it for us. That bitter cup, love drank it up, left but the love for me. How oh, this is just glorious. This is the gospel. This is the work of Jesus Christ. And so we see them drink their sin, but that's not the end of the story. There's more gospel in all this. Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon the people? And then Aaron, Aaron says, let not the anger of, uh, of my Lord burn hot. This is ridiculous. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, he's blaming them. This is back to the Garden of Eden, right? The, the, the woman made me do it. The snake made me do it. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. All right, that's true. So they gave it to me. And get this, he says, and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. What did we actually see back in verse five or verse four? It says that with a graving tool, he used a tool. It didn't throw it in the fire. He used a tool. It was detailed. It took effort. It took intentionality. This was not an accidental sin. Friends, I'm guilty. Not of just accidental sins. Not just uh, by nature a sinner. Yes, I was born a sinner. But not by, just by nature. There's, a, there's an old hymn that says, by nature and by practice far, so very far from God. That was me. By nature, sure, born a sinner, but I've also intentionally sinned. I've also rebelled against God. 
oh, by nature and by practice. Yet, yet here he's saying, I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> and then what do we see? We see that there's judgment that comes next. We see that in verse 26, Moses stands at the gate of the camp and says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi, those that priesthood, they gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. This is just a tragic portion. And look at verse 28. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, don't miss this. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. About 3,000. You know why this is so significant? Oh, because this is a picture of the glorious gospel again. About 3,000 fell. Get this connection in scripture. In John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, for well the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here we have the law, the law coming through Moses, and the law brought death, this idolatry. It brought death, and about 3,000 died that day. But in Acts 2, 41, we have the gospel. We have the spirit of God descending upon that early church. And after the gospel is preached, what does it say? So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. About 3,000. First, about 3,000 men of the people fell. About 3,000 souls are saved. This is the reversal. Moses, the lawgiver, brought death coming off the mountain. Jesus, the life giver, brought life coming off of Mount Calvary, conquering the grave itself. The sons of Levi, the, the, the priesthood, they were responsible for carrying out judgment. But now us, as the priests, as a holy priesthood to God, we are responsible not for carrying out judgment, but for carrying out good news. <laughs> I love this. Uh, you go on and and there, it's all just rich and worth seeing more, more closely. But verse 30, Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, uh, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you, as in continue doing what I've called you to do. Behold, my angel shall go before you. And that's a promise of his faithfulness, right? He said that back in chapter 23. He's going to put his angel before them. But notice this last phrase, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. That's, 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 terrifying. I will visit their sin upon them. What does this mean? Well, what a contrast it is to our day of visitation when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, not coming to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John three seventeen. See, even at the end of this chapter in verse 35, what do we see? The Lord sent a plague on the people. Why? Because they made the calf. Just a few chapters ago, or a decent amount of chapters ago, God was sending plagues on, on the people of Egypt, on the land of Egypt, on Pharaoh. Why? Because that they might know that he is the Lord. Well, now he's sending a plague on his people. Ultimately, that they might know that he is the Lord. Again, we see this reversal of what we saw earlier, but what we recognize is the holiness of God. God is alone on the throne. 
He is not to be compromised. He is worthy of our all. And I just wonder, where today are we imitating these children of Israel? We have experienced the goodness of God. He's brought us from death to life, from slavery to, to, to relationship with him. And yet how quick we are to pursue the idols of this world. What I'd like to do as we, we close out this portion of scripture is just ask you a series of uh, about, I don't know, maybe about 13 questions. Uh, and I just want you to meditate on these. If you're, if you're listening in the car, you might want to pause between each one. If you're, if you're taking notes, write them down and, and journal through them. Whatever it might be that you can just spend time contemplating, give space for God to speak. But here are some questions. The first question I'd like to ask is, what are you seeking as your all-satisfying good in life. Now, I'm not telling you that this is an idol, that, that the answer is. I'm saying you might, you'll probably find an idol. If you journal through all of these, you'll find idols. So start just thinking through what keeps reappearing. What are you seeking as your all-satisfying good, that ultimate goal? What are you treating as a practical savior in your life? I know uh, for many, there's a struggle with sexual sins. Um, maybe it's the sin of, practice, uh, of actual um, you know, adultery, of immorality. Um, maybe it's the sins of pornography and filling our minds with uh, not just lust, but that which devalues others. And we might have this idea that, well, if I get married, my spouse, I'll no, no longer have these struggles. Well, you know good and well, that's not true. But when we have that perception, we're treating our spouse as a savior. She or he will save me from the sin if I'm married to them. Again, only one thing can save you from sin, and that is the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. We might think the same thing with, uh, with, with, with maybe it's... Um, you know, oh, we're struggling financially, whatever, you know, if I get this job, what, yeah, sure, God can use a job to provide for you, just like he can use a wife or husband to provide for certain physical um, needs you might have. But the reality is the only one who can satisfy your heart is Jesus Christ. So when I ask the question, am I treating anything else as my practical savior? That's where we're going with that. Next question, does anything cause me to disobey God in any way? Does anything cause me to disobey God in any way? Guys, this is powerful. Today in your life, are you accepting a form of sin in your life? Well, if you are, there's an idol involved. What is that idol you're trying to protect? It might be your desire for, for a certain feeling of love, a certain physical whatever. Uh, if you are accepting sin in your life, you have an idol. It might be a person. It might be a thing. It might be an idea. It might be a relationship. Whatever the case is, there's an idol. If you are intentionally embracing sin, uh, and you're allowing it to cause you to disobey God. Another question, what gives us greater joy than God? Or where do we look for refreshment? We might find an idol there. What gives us the most excitement about our future? We might find an idol there. What do we daydream about most often? You might find an idol. What do we most enjoy talking about? You might find an idol. If you don't know what you most enjoy talking about, ask your friends. They can tell you. What do you fear losing most? It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you might find an idol. Remember, idols oftentimes are good things in the wrong place. And that's an important thing to remember. It's not that you have to necessarily get rid of, for instance, my wife can be my idol. My children can be my idol. I'm not going to get rid of them. But we need to reposition recognizing who is God and God alone. 
what do I fear losing most? Another one, what do I spend my, mostly spend my money on or what do I spend my money on most? One way to look at this, if you give your friend your credit card statement or you give your friend your, your budget, what are they gonna see as most important to you? Another question, where do you most enjoy spending your time? Your time consumption will oftentimes point to your idols of life, especially where you spend your so-called free time. What do you complain about? What you complain about is oftentimes the very things that the next question says, what do you try to protect and defend? See, whatever we try to protect and defend, typically we're going to see idols there. Are we protecting ourselves, defending our own statements, defending our own uh, character? Defend or are we focused more on proclaiming the goodness of our God, proclaiming his name, proclaiming his gospel, recognizing that he's got you. He's got us. Just leave that to him. But we can focus on glorifying his name. And one final question, what occupies a place in your life that God and only God should occupy? Like your peace, your confidence about the future. You get the idea. What occupies a place in your life that only God should occupy? Again, these questions are just meant for a, a diagnostic um, place in your life to, to be able to see where idols might be residing, what these idols might be. I encourage you to take some time and let the Holy Spirit speak to you but as we have journeyed through chapter 32 of Exodus, just beware, beware. We're really not much different. But the good news, the gospel is, and the gospel has come to save a sinner like me and a sinner like you. How glorious it is. Now, this has been Into Your Bible. I trust it's an encouragement to you. You can check out more at www.intoyourbible.org for more resources, free downloads. Um, check out our Instagram for regular devotionals if that interests you. But remember, our prayer for you and the prayer for myself is that we would be a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.